Hi friends, content warning for this episode. Our show for today uses ableist language and slurs as well as ableist content. Listener discretion is advised. And we are in. Hello. Hello. I'm really ready for this, are you? I was born ready for this. I'm Paul DeGers. I'm Jillian Willems. And this is Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we examine Broadway shows that had runs of 100 performances or fewer on Broadway from opening to closing, not counting previews. And what the heck happened? Exactly. What went on? (laughs) What went wrong? What went right? Seeing if we can diagnose the issues. What's our show today? I'm so excited because our show today is Bill Russell and Henry Krieger's Sideshow. Let it be noted that we will be primarily discussing the original Broadway production, 1997. Absolutely. But there will also be some forays into 2014's revival, especially when comparing it to 1997. This is an interesting case, an interesting show, because it's, I think, possibly one of the only shows we will ever discuss that had a two Broadway runs, both of which did not crack 100 performances on Broadway. Mm-hmm. That's wild. That is very bananas. And they got very near to 100 performances. I believe this one, the 1997 one, got very near to 100 performances. Um, Got three months worth of performances or so. And the 2014 revival only got two months worth of performances or so. Huh. Yeah. Let's get into it. Absolutely. So 1997, Sideshow, opens at the Richard Rogers Theatre. Previews began September 19th, 1997. The show opened October 16th, 1997, and closed January 3rd, 1998, after 31 previews and 91 performances. I believe this is our longest-running flop yet. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I hope someday we have one that's like 99 that Mm. just almost did it. Let's find it. What should we start with this week? Well, let's start with a little bit of context. As always, we are connoisseurs of context, (laughs) and it's important to us that our listeners have as much context as we do to understand what we're talking about and why we're talking about what we talk about. So, Sideshow is based on a true story. Mm -hmm. It's based on the true story of real-life conjoined twins Violet and Daisy Hilton. I believe. Did you end up reading their book, Jill, or did you just do some research? I did not read the book, nor did I watch the two movies they were in. No. But we did a little bit of research. Absolutely. Violet and Daisy Hilton were born to an unwed mother in 1901. Uh, Her name was Kate Skinner. So Violet and Daisy were sold then to Kate Skinner's boss, Mrs. Hilton. (laughs) That's where they got their last name. And then because they were the first conjoined twins in the UK to survive longer than two weeks, Mm. I guess there was novelty in that. And so Mrs. Hilton saw an opening and bought these young women and put them on display in a couple of different pubs is my understanding. Yeah. It's maybe it's worth, it's worth talking about now as we're diving into this, that this story, this real life story, Mm -hmm. and thus this adaptation of it, Tackles a part of history where disabled and differently abled people were really treated very poorly. Mm -hmm. Um, And thus involves a lot of pretty horrendous violations of basic human rights. Yes. And and the loss of that autonomy. Yeah, absolutely. They ended up up on display in various pubs. Just Mm -hmm. terrible. So after a little while, I can only speculate, but I assume Mm -hmm. that Mrs. Hilton saw a possibility in traveling the the children. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so they began to do a circuit and perform, I Correct. guess. All the while, Mrs. Hilton did not pay the girls no. the money and was just taking all of their funds left, right, and center. Any Absolutely. appearance, yeah. she took their money. And they continued to grow in um, they continued to grow in popularity. That's right. Correct. They continued to get more and more successful. Um, they were very talented performers, very talented mm-hmm. singers and dancers. And it was kind of musicians. They did it all. And it was kind of a, um, not only just a novelty, but actually because they were had a quite a bit of skill, but it was mm. pretty cool to see conjoined twins performing at this level. That's right. So Mary Hilton dies and bequeaths the twins to her daughter, Edith, 
and Edith's husband so that the family can continue to profit off of the twins' abilities. Totally. While, you know, obviously not Not actually them, having the twins gain from their hard work. Or allowing them to choose the life that they want to lead. Totally. So finally, and I don't know what year, mm-hmm. I believe though it would have been in the 20s or early 30s, the twins yeah. take Edith Myers to court to gain their freedom and they won $100,000, which is $1.5 million today. Fantastic. Yes. So finally they're free yep. and they can begin to make choices for themselves. Yeah. And, and they, then, they continue to work in entertainment, correct? That's this right. Is, um, this is their love. This is um, the life that they know. So they continue to work as entertainers. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So they work as entertainers and make a couple movies. They both end up getting married. One marriage lasts 10 days. Yeah. The other lasts 10 years. And they were kind of, they, they were kind of like tabloid stars at this point as yes. well. They were moderate celebrities so i think even the 10-day marriage was very much a tabloid marriage Mm -hmm. is what i understand yes exactly and then they end up my understanding is toward the end of their lives they wound up in a small town so someone steals their money yeah i believe their their tour manager i think ends up uh, leaving them without a ton of money and they end up stuck in north carolina without any way of getting out And they end up getting a job in a grocery store. Literally, that's how they spend the last years of their life, is just working at a grocery store in North Carolina. Yeah. And then one day they don't come to work, and and someone goes to check on them, and they've passed away. Absolutely. They died of a a respiratory illness. Yes. Yeah. A really sad, tragic life for Mm -hmm. two um, public figures. I think potentially the two most prominent public figures who are conjoined twins. Um, yeah. And who are entertainers. So, of course, naturally, um, we think, let's make a musical. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's obviously facetious. It's not necessarily a obvious choice for a musical. But it's a fascinating story and a story with the potential for a lot of pathos and a lot of, um, a lot of compassion. Yeah, I agree. So, the other bit of context we need before we jump into what this is, is a little bit of history on the actual creative team that wrote this, Bill Russell and Henry mm. Krieger. It's very fascinating. Henry Krieger especially is a very fascinating composer to me. I'm so um, excited to hear about your feelings. Totally. So Henry Krieger is very fascinating in that he has been wildly successful, but not very prolific at all. Mm-hmm. He's written a very fair amount of shows, I think. Six or seven shows. Oh. I know, right? The only one you've heard of, besides potentially Side Joe, would be Dreamgirls. Yes. He wrote Dreamgirls in the late 70s and early 80s, and Dreamgirls is an enormous hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes very well. Rightfully it, so. Rightfully it's so. A it's a beautiful, show. a beautiful piece. And Dreamgirls has been his big success for a long time, between the musical, which did very well for itself, the movie, which mm-hmm. came out in the mid-2000s, Yes. Um, which made him one of the only composers to be triple nominated for Best uh, best Original Song. Okay. It's like him, Alan Menken, and Elton John. And that's it. So these two huge heavy hitters and Henry Krieger. <laughs> and Isn't people are like, who is this yeah, person? Yeah, exactly. Well, there's an interview you can read with him where he's like, <laughs> I don't believe this. This is very bizarre. That's so humble. <laughs> it also, that said, it also makes sense to have him chosen as um, someone that he would be, he would gravitate towards this story given Dreamgirls success in Dreamgirls content. Mm-hmm. Dreamgirls is also a show about a disenfranchised population drawn to the entertainment industry and taken advantage of within the entertainment industry right. and struggling to reclaim their autonomy within mm-hmm. that. Um, it does it beautifully. Yes. He writes a few other shows, or he writes one other show just after Dreamgirls. Dreamgirls is 1981. Mm-hmm. Immediately following that, a show called The Tap Dance Kid. Then Henry Krieger disappears. For like 15 years? For 15 years. Wow. Before he comes back and the and begins to develop Sideshow. The development process for Sideshow was long. It was a mm. few years of writing and workshops and out-of-town tryouts before it found its way to Broadway. And then, from what I understand, he was just destroyed that it um, didn't do very well on Broadway. Oh. Sideshow was very close to his heart. He gave a lot of love and put a lot of effort into it. Yeah. And was very disappointed when it didn't work out. That's really too bad. Absolutely. So since then, most of his work has ended up being working on the Dreamgirls movie, Mm -hmm. a couple of little projects here and there, none of which amounted to much commercially. Um, Artistically, I'm sure they're 
just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then the Sideshow Revival in 2014. Right. Where you can find a lot of interviews with him saying, this time we're doing it right. Sideshow <laughs> will get the um, the love it deserves. Aww. And then friggin' crushingly, the exact same thing happens and Sideshow can't find any love. Wow. And that's really the end of Henry Krieger's professional career. He may live to do uh, something another day, but the last thing was he contributed a song to a compilation of like, Broadway artists for Obama in 2018. Oh, interesting. Or something like that. Yeah. Which is cool. Which is great. Yeah. Um, like an original piece? Yep. Like okay. So like an original piece here and there. Very much like a... I would compare it to Marvin Hamlish. Compare it to right. Marvin Hamlish. We'll get more into this into the music itself. Both in terms of actual composing style in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And in terms of sheer brilliance. But really not very prolific. So there we go. There is a... Um, to have that in our head... As we take this apart, this is Henry Krieger, and this is very much his baby and a show that is close to his heart. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of love that was put into this show from the perspective of this this man, of this composer. So let's talk about 1997's Sideshow. Let's go down our list. For those of you just joining us for the first time, welcome! It's good to have you here. We go down a list of various elements of the show taking them apart, discussing them, and then giving them a ranking of X amount of monkeys out of 10 playbills. A rating system specifically designed by us. Absolutely. Scientifically designed <laughs> <Yeah>. by us. <laughs> Months to be the... in a lab. <laughs> Could you imagine? Beakers. So there many, many beakers. many beakers were involved in the creation of this <laughs> rating system brought from us to you. I say we start oh. with music, lyrics, and book, like all together. Absolutely, because they're very much Henry Krieger and Bill Russell- working hard on all of these together. So the book, the music, and the lyrics all in one. Music by Henry Krieger, book and lyrics by Bill Russell. Correct. It's also worth mentioning that the music director, vocal and dance arrangements were all done by David Chase. David Chase is a Who has done so much. I'm in love with David Chase. I just recently worked on David Chase's arrangements. With um, in Rogers and Hammerstein, Cinderella, yeah. which I did at Rainbow Stage this past season. Jill was in that production, mm-hmm. and it's incredible work that he Some did on that production. Beautiful work. I am all for David Chase, and he does beautiful work on this as well. I'm actually really excited because it looks like he's the one doing the dance arrangements for the new production of The Music Man. Oh, and I kind of love The Music Man. A lot yeah. of people don't, but I really do. I don't know I what do it too. is. And then it says it was orchestrated by Harold Wheeler. Yeah. So I wasn't entirely sure about the difference between maybe vocal arrangements and dance arrangements versus orchestrations. Paul, can you help? I would love to help. (laughs) Oh, it would be my pleasure. Um, They're both very significant jobs and fantastic jobs. So there's a few significant members of the music team that go into creating a new piece of musical theater, especially Mm -hmm. at this level. The composer is actually generating content with with his team, be it the book writer, the lyricist or um, if that's all in one that's fine that new material eventually then goes to an arranger who creates intros endings splices pieces around Mm. adds uh, vocal harmonies essentially makes it workable within the context of the show okay most composers are totally equipped to do this themselves some of them do do them themselves Mm -hmm. but a lot of the time it comes down to actual time the composer is busy creating new material mm-hmm. or trying to figure out if the material is working while the... I'm sorry, is Millie in that bag again? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Millie! Don't mind me. She's like, oh, you brought my favorite bag no again. Cat. No cats in here, just audio equipment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's helping. So okay. the, the composer is busy generating new material. The arranger yes. is making that material workable in the context of the show. And then those arrangements get sent to the orchestrator who figures out what all the instruments in the pit orchestra are going to play to make it sound beautiful. Yeah. Once again, these are all usually functions that each member of the music team would be comfortable doing, but it all comes down to time. Right. It comes down to the arranger needs to be in the room arranging new material as Mm -hmm. they receive it from the composer and then handing it off to the orchestrator or team of orchestrators who are typically just working day and night actually generating orchestrations so they can be ready for the next um, the next orchestra rehearsal or orchestra performance. And then all of those roles report to the composer ultimately for final decision, I guess? They would report to a combination of the composer and the music director okay. working in collaboration. Great. Absolutely. Okay. That helps me 
yeah. understand that. Yeah. Beautiful work all around on this production as far yeah. as music goes. This is... Well, what do you think of this music, Jill? I really like it. Yeah. It's really good. Henry Krieger is an awesome composer. I think the thing that really got me excited was that I was hearing a lot of it for the first time. So my first introduction to the music from Sideshow was specifically the songs I Will Never Leave You and Who Will Love Me As I Am. Because there are very few duets that are written for two female voices. Mm -hmm. And when you're growing up performing in music festival or dance festival, your options um, of performing with your pals become quite limited if it's just you and another woman. And so a lot of people opted to do those one of those two duets because it really kind of felt like that and maybe sometimes Wicked would be our only options at that time. At least for contemporary vocal style. Exactly. And this is Who Will Love Me As I Am especially. The verse just screams Stephen Schwartz. Henry Pickering oh and Stephen Schwartz God. are obviously contemporaries. And you listen to the verse of Who Will Love Me As I Am and you're like, oh, that's for good. Yep, yes. that is, totally. they're, they're, they're betting, they're right on the same page there. And that's not a bad thing. That's two brilliant composers being on the same page. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really nice to have a snapshot of what was happening at that time. Absolutely. Vocally. I couldn't agree more. I also love the, I love the music in this piece. I think Henry Krieger does a fantastic job. It reeks of maybe a time a little bit earlier than when it actually came out. It's Mm -hmm. very early 90s to me. Oh yeah. There's some power ballads in there. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And I would also say this this is a musical that's almost entirely sung through, which is why we're considering the book and the lyrics and the music together. Yeah. Some of his like recitative mm-hmm. doesn't quite play as hard. Yeah, I don't hate it. No. But you're right. It just doesn't rise to the level of some of those standalone pieces. He hits his stride in when he gets to a song proper. Yes. It's awesome. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Um, I also wondered too if... If you noticed, because I sure did, that this might have been sort of the beginning of the belting time for female vocalists, because I'm watching Alice Ripley. Friend of the podcast, Alice Ripley is in this show. (laughs) That's correct. Alice Ripley, who was our very special guest for the American Psycho episode, (laughs) is now our very special guest again. Again. Alice Ripley's here, but we don't have a microphone for her. Yeah, that's okay. She'll just watch. Sorry. Yep. Very good. Nice to have you here. So Alice Ripley, I mean, we really start to hear what she's capable of. Mm -hmm. Emily Skinner, too. She's the one who leads us into the... Yeah, yeah. And we hear growling. We get growls. (laughs) We get growls. Do you feel like Alice Ripley is out singing Emily Skinner almost every time they're singing together? Okay. Yes and no. (laughs) I think she... I wonder if there's like a certain level of competition between them throughout... The music totally. of the show. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's fine. I just felt like I could always <laughs> pick out Alice Ripley's voice specifically. Well, her vibrato is yeah. something else, though. <laughs> anyway, we it's don't need a... to talk too much about the performance yet, yes, but I definitely no. wanted to call attention to no. that quality. We will get we will get to the actress performances yeah. in a bit, or as I like to call it, the Alice Ripley portion of yeah, this show. Yeah, the Alice Ripley portion. <laughs> But yes, it's the first time that we're really starting to hear what is now the Broadway belt, I think. Uh, I'm inclined to agree. It's kind of something that's been gradually ramping up, up Mm -hmm. to this point. But to the best of my knowledge, it's a, the culmination of a long process that started in the 70s, in the 70s with Chorus Line, Mm -hmm. became very significant in the Cameron Macintosh era, in the mega musical era, um, especially with Les Mis and Miss Saigon. Um, Kind of the power mix. And this is just the start of getting past power mix into a little bit of a yell. Mm -hmm. A yell belt. That would only become more significant with the rise of Adina Menzel. Yes. Pretty much immediately after this. Exactly. Yep. I love it. I love that we can... Or pretty much... No, right around this. Right around this Just before this because she was in Rent. Rent. I want to ask about like the song Tunnel of Love specifically. (sighs) Banger. No. What a banger. I hate it so much. What? What? Oh, I hate it so much. Heartily disagree. I don't know why I hate it. Maybe I just, I'm like, it comes out of nowhere. Like, it musically doesn't match. I'd like to call attention to the fact that we did use banger unironically in that moment. 
was really proud of us guys. Um, <laughs> first of all, we didn't. You didn't. <laughs> okay. I loved Tunnel of Love because it comes at a point in the second act when not much has happened. We haven't gotten to the really... We've had a great first act with a lot of great songs. Mm-hmm. Second act kind of meanders. It's kind of a little weird. Yeah. We have young Norm Lewis singing his heart out, oh. but the plot line kind of is... What's the point? Um, But Young Norm Lewis is great. Please tune in in a few minutes for the cast section, or in other words, the Norm Lewis hour. (laughs) Appreciation Um, hour. Appreciation appreciation hour. (laughs) But I thought it was a real, a breath of fresh air going into the end of the show. And you disagree. I disagree. But (laughs) but maybe, and this is the beautiful thing about theater in general, is that we can all have such varying opinions on the exact same thing. Varying experiences. And I love getting to know that in someone else. I agree. Absolutely. (laughs) No judgment at all. So what about the lyrics and the book? Which once again we're counting as one because it's a sung through musical. For me, the, some of the problems lie not in the lyrics, but in the book. In the structure of this, the structure of this story. Yeah. The way they've decided to retell it. Absolutely. That's one of my main issues with Sideshow. I agree completely. I think if there is a problem here, it's with the way they structure the story. Mm-hmm. The actual lyrical content, I can't really find fault with, especially. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of a lot of fun, a lot of good. The lyrics are very much constructed in that post-Golden Age 1970s. Mm-hmm. I keep on coming back to Marvin Hamlish because very much something like I Will Never Leave You feels like it's structured in a very similar way to um, what I did for Love or something. Yes, exactly. And... I love it. So lyrically, lyrically, not a problem. Not at all. Uh, musically, not a problem. Beautiful music. The book. The plot. Yeah. I think. It just feels so... It just doesn't do justice to who I believe to be, in my very small amount of research, the the Hilton sisters. I just feel like maybe they missed the mark a little bit on what was important about their story. Is it possible that a big part of the problem is it centers a lot on how the Hilton sisters relate to the romantic relationships around them. Yeah, and that's not the usually relation- a problem for me. Yeah, and not the relationship <laughs> between the Hilton sisters with each other. Or their careers. Or their careers, yeah. Like it all seems to fall to love. And again, like mm-hmm. I've expressed that on previous episodes, yeah. my feeling about how the female narrative yep. tends to end up revolving around the male experience or men's actions. Yeah. And that is, that is a problem with this show. Yeah, I think so. I think that's what made me feel the most yucky about it. Yep. I would, I would agree with that. So as far as, why don't we judge in two separate categories? Great. Let's judge music and lyrics, Mm -hmm. quality, Mm -hmm. and then structure of the story of the book. Great. Music and lyrics out of 10 playbills. How many monkeys? Seven and a half. Very good. I would say eight and a half. Ooh. I'm a big fan. Maybe it's just the fact that after three weeks of musicals I didn't like, <laughs> it felt awesome to listen You're to a right. musical where it's very clear that they are writing a musical and know how to write a musical. Yeah. I also <laughs> love that, yes, it's it's music, like it's based on a real life thing that happened. Yeah. But I do like what they've done with the the music in like nodding to the time period, but not strictly sticking with only vaudeville. Absolutely. There's a really nice mix of like contemporary classic. Yeah. And then, and then little winks of like, Oh, here's a vaudeville number. This musical clearly shows its influences on its sleeves in regards to gypsy and cabaret. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As far as the structure, the book of the show goes, how many monkeys out of 10 playbills? Okay. So, I need to break this into two separate things. Yep. I need to break it into the script itself and then the structure. Roger that. So the script itself, five? Okay. Six? Sure. Didn't hate any of the dialogue per se. Yeah. It doesn't crackle, but it's kind of nice. But again, I just can't get out of my mind the fact that this story just revolves around men somehow when it's really supposed to be about a lot of other things. And so for the structure of the plot and the retelling, I would say one or two. 
But I would, but I might take away a point because there's this part in the beginning. I don't want to get it wrong. I want to read you what I wrote down about it. Terrific. So at the beginning, I'm taking another, maybe a point away for this because Mm -hmm. the boss, this evil guy who's in control of the twins uh, in the sideshow says something like he's trying to entice this guy to come watch them or meet with them or something to make some little extra money. And he says something along the lines of, yeah, they're conjoined twins. Like you got to come meet them. And the guy's like, I'm good. Thanks. Like I just, I'm cool. And and then the boss is like, no, but they sing. And then the guy's like, okay, I'll come see them. Like, I don't (laughs) like that. I don't like that. (laughs) It's like, as if the draw was like, Oh, Okay, cool. Well, they sing. Well, I better come see that. I will. I will defer to you in this regard. <laughs> it didn't bother me as much as um, as it did you. Mm-hmm. But I also defer to the fact that you're seeing it with a strong perspective, mm-hmm. and I respect that completely. Yeah. Two monkeys out of ten playbills. Sure, I'm there. <laughs> Absolutely. That's Thanks very for being interesting. On my side, well, it's Paul. very it's very interesting because that's not what I expected. So I'm looking forward to the end now to Ooh. see where we um where we fall on what went wrong with this musical. Why it didn't crack a hundred. I also think it's worth noting that on stage agent, they often will give a breakdown of sort of what you need in order to put up the show. So there'll be like X number of male characters and X number of female characters, right? Totally. And then in this one on the stage agent page, it said mostly male characters. Yep. Which is, um, which is accurate when you think of the actual character breakdown. And so for a show about conjoined twins, like it just feels weird that. For that a it would sto- be mo- mostly for, men. For a story that is about the journey of these two women conjoined yes, twins. Yes, correct. It feels weird that they are, it is mostly men. Yeah. It's very interesting because these individual songs that they sing are so nice and mm-hmm. take, tell the journey of sisterhood and their relationship yes. together so well. Between um, I Will Never Leave You, um, Leave Me Alone is another one oh, that comes I love to mind. That one. Um, which is very much an effective breakdown of their relationship with each other yes even though it is also talking about their relationship with men it's about how their relationship with each other is affected by the experience they're having with men that's right but on a whole i'm i'm inclined to agree it Mm -hmm. doesn't quite doesn't quite get there yeah fair enough what about you yep I'll, i'll take the two the two is my call okay let's talk about the creative team the show was directed and choreographed by robert longbottom cool name not but. so cool CV, because <laughs> it pretty much was Sideshow and then Bye Bye Birdie. Associate choreographer, Tom Cossis. Okay. Assistant choreographers, Michael Clowers and Darlene Wilson. So in addition to an associate choreographer, there were also assistant choreographers. And for me, I don't fully understand the distinction other than maybe it's like hierarchical. I believe so. Associates are there to step in and essentially take the place of the head creative, mm-hmm. should the head creative be indisposed in some way, be it Great. in another room for a rehearsal and another meeting or something, the associate is training to essentially step in seamlessly. And the assistant is training to provide anything that the, um, the head creative and the associate creative need, and also be ready to step in if need be. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so Paul. Yes. Do you have any strong feelings about the direction or choreography? Yes, I do. Great. I'd love to hear them. I think that if we're going to identify some problems with the show, the direction, the choreography might be part of it. Mm-hmm. I think I'd love to talk about the staging. Yes, please. I'm going to share my thoughts real quick and then I want to hear your much more informed thoughts. <laughs> real quick, to me, it seemed like the staging was too static and things got boring very quickly. It seemed like they felt trapped by the fact that their two lead actresses had to be literally joined at the hip at all times. Correct. Um, not that they needed to be trapped by that, but it felt like it felt like that they felt that way. So that's where that was my impression as someone who sees a lot of shows but has never staged a show in his life. Where's your head at? <laughs> I actually feel quite the same. Yeah. So I think it's worth describing um, one of the things you're talking about. Um, yeah. Alice Ripley and Emily Skinner attached at the hip through i think the rumor was magnets really so i heard this is the original production specifically i think they modified for the the revival but i believe they had magnets in their dresses what 
See, this is so interesting because to me, the actual costuming for the original production to um, emulate the um, the visual of the conjoined twins mm-hmm. does not look very good in the original production. Exactly. And it looks awesome in the revival. Correct. So I think it's because of the magnets. Really? And then, but again, that's that's just a rumor and I don't even know where I would have heard that. But mm-hmm. I kind of like, like imagining that that was what was happening. So when you have your two leads magneted mm-hmm. to the hip, you know, at the hip, it really limits what is possible um, with their dialogue Magne- between the two of exactly. them. Exactly. Magneted at the hip, not able to look each other in the eye. Right. Or if they do, the audience loses a lot of, if not all of it, right? Yep, absolutely. So they, when I say they, I'm assuming Robert Longbottom, mm-hmm. um, came up with the idea to have them, when they were speaking to each other, to speak it out toward the audience, but to react as if they were speaking to one another. Sure. Which isn't a bad idea. Because <sighs> I've seen <laughs> it done... I've seen it done in really creative and wonderful yeah. ways, but not but as conjoined twins. It doesn't really work here. It works really well when they're on opposite ends of the stage. Yeah. Or like the lame is concert versions. They often will do that where they yep. sing out, but they're mm-hmm. very clearly having a conversation yep. and we buy it. Absolutely. But for some reason, I think it's maybe their proximity that makes it really awkward and weird. Yeah. I'm inclined to agree. There was also moments, especially in the first bit of the show. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of... The song that young Norm Lewis, The Devil You Know. Mm-hmm. Great song. Young Norm Lewis sounds incredible. So oh my gosh. And But the whole staging of the number ends up feeling very static. Yes. Because everyone is singing to the twins. Everyone in the, every member of the sideshow is singing to the twins. Mm-hmm. Hoping to impart advice on them. And they just feel so trapped. The whole staging feels very tight and mm-hmm. unable to move. Yes. Because they all have to be centered around these two performers And the production feels wary to move them anywhere. Absolutely. And it's odd, though, because it's worth noting that there's an aspect of the set that moves. So there are these, I believe there's four of them, risers. But I think it's worth noting that those are on wheels and at the disposal of this cast because they do make the cast move them the entire show. So you're like, oh, you could have had the twins sitting on a riser. You could have moved them about the stage to really... Absolutely. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. That was very frustrating to me. Yeah, so I would agree. Why don't you tell me how you feel about the choreography? Because this was also Robert Longbottom. I feel fine about the choreography. I don't okay. have I don't have many opinions about the choreography. At least what I'm perceiving as the choreography. Yeah. <laughs> what I perceive as the choreography were these um, individual acts in the uh, in the opening number mm-hmm. when we're introducing various members of the sideshow. Yes. And a couple of big ensemble numbers in world during the vaudeville acts, and those were fine. I didn't, I wasn't like, wow, that's incredible. They were very, seemed like very typical vaudeville numbers. Mm-hmm. I thought there was kind of some fun moments for the twins doing choreography as they're doing vaudeville choreography as conjoined twins. Right. But nothing, nothing that blew my mind by any means. What yes. about you as a choreographer? I felt that the choreo seemed heavily influenced by like modern dance, which yeah. is fine. It's just like, I wanted to see if maybe Robert Longbottom had a ton of Martha Graham training or something because I was like, oh, this is very modern. Really? Not in a bad way. Yeah. But I just couldn't quite place the movement. And so that didn't bother me for any things that were happening in real time. Mm. The only time that the choreography bothered me was actually in the vaudeville numbers. Really? I felt there were a lot of missed opportunities. Yeah. Because I get the impression that the twins can be cheeky about it. Yeah. Like, it's written into the music that they are. Yeah, literally every song they sing in vaudeville is a different take on, we're conjoined twins. But look what we can do. Yeah, totally. And then they just kind of didn't do anything. And I'm like, oh, there's so many choreographic possibilities. Absolutely. So I think some of the little jokes were missed. It's very fascinating because I read some articles that talked about Robert Longbottom leading up to this and calling him, he's a very exciting new director of choreographer. He's the next Michael Bennett. And this was his first And this was his first Broadway. thing. Um, yeah. And it's very obvious. I think they were calling him the next Michael Bennett as a, a heavy hitter director-choreographer combo. Not necessarily because his um, style is like legendary Michael Bennett. Um, and it's obvious from this that he's not really equipped to hold that mantle. Exactly. So this brings us to Ben Brantley's review. Yes. Of the, Friend of the podcast. The <laughs> ben Brantley. 
So, Paul, you sent us a really great article from the New York Post. Yes. That talks a little bit about or gave us some more context about the 97 production and what might have happened there. Yep. And then it also talks a little bit about how they were re- reviving it. Totally. Okay. So in that article, they yep. they mentioned that Ben Brantley, friend of the podcast, yep. began his tenure at the New York Times right before Sideshow opened. Wow, wow, wow. So his first review as head critic was for Sideshow. And went on to be the just the tastemaker for Broadway. Shows live and die by the Times review. Yes. So he writes about Robert Longbottom's choreography, quote, The vaudeville and Follies pastiches lack the wit in the choreography of, say, Michael Bennett for Follies or Bob Fosse for Chicago. And I was really excited when I read that because it's exactly how I was feeling. Absolutely. Um, so I wasn't off. I wasn't far yeah. off in my opinions and perceptions that's so fascinating michael bennett not michael bennett ben brantley coming out strong Mm -hmm. with his first review as head critic yeah but also weirdly it's the nicest review we've read so far far. (laughs) easily it's his nicest that we've read if you were going to i think we consider the direction and the choreography together because it was um done by a director choreographer yep if you were going to rate it out of 10 playbills how many monkeys would you give it five I agree. It yeah. doesn't actively hurt the show, but I think a better, a str- some stronger direction and stronger choreo could have really enhanced the show. Yes. As we see in the 2014 version. We'll get to that later. Let's go on something else. Let's talk about the design. So, Scenic Design by mm-hmm. Robin Wagner. Who did Young Frankenstein and Lacusa's Wild Party and Kiss Me Kate. So a lot of really great sets. Costume design, Greg Barnes, like tons of stuff. Mean Girls, Something Rotten, Follies, Kinky Boots, etc. Lighting by Brian McDevitt. Mostly does plays, um, but did the Carousel Revival. Sound design by Tom Clark, who did Porgy and Bess and the Hair Revival, which I got to see. And I can speak to the sound. And it was awesome. Was the Hair Revival really good? Yeah, it was so good. With like Gavin Creel? Yes. I saw it with friend of the podcast, Ryan Siegel. Oh, that's actual friend of the podcast, Ryan Siegel. Absolutely. (laughs) Actual friend of the podcast. Um, And then makeup by Maria Varel, who only did Sideshow. But I think that's actually not abnormal for a makeup artist to sort of do one musical that's the way it seems and then you know move on just in general i think it's so fascinating what we've observed so far that shit doesn't seem to stick to the designers yeah you know what i mean oh my gosh that's That's such a good point yeah that's such a good point because robert longbottom did sideshow as Mm -hmm. as his first foray into musical theater or direction i should say yeah and then like one or two things after and that's it absolutely whereas Mm -hmm. greg barnes goes on to do costumes for everything absolutely Let's talk about sets first, real quick. It was it was cool of them to um, borrow the set from the fringe production of Xana Don't that we did Stop. 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> that was that's neat how they Moving did that. Moving risers. <laughs> that's a a mean joke, a mean shot against this production, <laughs> where they use they use two moving risers that look very similar to risers that Jill and I <laughs> had in a production that she choreographed and I music directed of Xana Don't. At the beginning of our careers yes. in the Winnipeg Fringe Festival. Yeah, like 10 years ago. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And again, there is a lot of potential in those risers. Absolutely. But they were not used to their fullest. Mm-hmm. What did you feel about, in those vaudeville numbers, they would use some set pieces? What did you think of those? I thought they looked fine. Yeah, I agree. I think the the set design is underwhelming to me here. Yes. There's, there's no, I can't find, it doesn't suck. I'm mm-hmm. not frustrated but I wish they had done more. I agree. Yep. yep, I'm the same. And then costumes, what do you think? I like the costumes a lot. I really love yeah, them. absolutely. They're beautiful. Mm-hmm. I want to wear them all. <laughs> like, even the suits. Yeah. I want to wear the suits. 
Um, oh, so good. Lighting design as well, I think, is real nice. Yep. Understated for a lot of it, but then something like the Tunnel of Love number, I was like, yeah. Oh my God, no, we're not talking about yeah, that again. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was too, awesome. It was They did, the spectacle. lights were flashy. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun. They were flashing lights they like you're in the look, Tunnel of Love. <laughs> I was going to say, they made it look like a real tunnel. <laughs> as someone who's not a lighting designer at all, I'm a sucker for that. I'm like, yeah, you ah, are. it's flashing like the lights. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> five-year-old Paul DeGurst says Um, yeah I've only really commented on the costumes it's very fascinating to compare this to the 2014 version you said you saw clips of it so you can say the way that the Broadway aesthetic changed between the two versions where the the 2014 production has this enormous towering set Mm -hmm. it's really amazing it's amazing it's a beautiful set yeah to just see the uh, the change of aesthetic and the change of expectation in 20 years for a, for a Broadway show yeah. was very fascinating to see yeah. to me. You've hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. I think the change in expectation. Do you think that comes from the the digital age? Absolutely, it does. <laughs> I, I really think so. Yeah. Like The production shots and all of that needs to be at the forefront of how you're marketing your play. And so if it doesn't look good, people aren't going to come. Whereas before... Mm-hmm. You know, all you had to release was like your cast list and then people would be like, oh, I'll go, I'll go see that. Well, they just, they couldn't even access those production shots unless right. they were in New York. That's You know a, what I mean? Yeah. They, they couldn't access it over any kind of internet at that point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't prevalent at any rate. Good point. Whereas in 2014, you know, we know exactly what Town looks like. Yes. Even though neither of us have seen it. Right. We know darn well exactly what the, um, what the aesthetic is of that show fascinating yeah. it's really i love thinking about that i, know, I think so, i said that last cool? time too like just yeah. how technology has so greatly impacted the way that we as audiences like receive theater absolutely so let's give um let's give ratings there's yeah. not much to say about the design here other than we can all make it, it went from pretty good to great yeah. set and lights set and lights like five four five Four and a half. Okay, four and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Final That's answer. four monkeys out of ten playbills. I'm going to say five, four for set. Okay. No, I'm going to say five and a half because four for set, seven for lights because I like the flashing Ooh. lights. So combine that, you get five and a half. Everyone, if you're doing a play yep. or a musical. Absolutely. And Paul's coming to see it. Yep. If you don't have a goddamn flashing light well i'll, I'll probably be bored i'll probably walk i'll be bored and he'll yeah. leave um okay and then costumes how many monkeys out of uh, ten playbills? seven yeah i i might say eight <laughs> yeah totally i would say eight okay so cool. i'm just imagining going to a show and someone's just by the light switch going click 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 click, click. <laughs> yeah what a good show i love that idea <laughs> Are you happy now, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> I am. Ten playbills, ten monkeys. Thank you. <laughs> All Let's right. talk about the performances. Yes. Who's in the cast, Paul? Who's in the cast? What a good question. So, our twins, Violet and Daisy, are played by Alice Ripley and Emily Skinner. I would say respectively, but I actually can't remember who plays which. It's what Alice Ripley is on stage left. Yes, but I don't know which yeah, I know, neither do which I. twin that is. That's I think terrible. it's I'm Daisy, I'm Violet, because they sing about it. Alice Ripley's Violet. Violet. Yep. We also have um, friend of the podcast Hugh Panero Aww. as Buddy. Sweet young Hugh Panero. In Sweet this. young Hugh Panero. Ken Jennings, not that Ken not Jennings. Not that Ken Jennings. I know. I as, was like, I know that name. <laughs> as the evil boss. Yes. Ken Jennings before he went on to be a Stop. Jeopardy. Superstar. You're going to confuse them. <laughs> a young Norm Lewis <sighs> as Jake, the cannibal king. I'm going to come out and say it now. Yeah. I have such a crush on Norm Lewis. And what's the other guy's name? Is it Terry? The other guy? Terry. Is Jeff McCarthy. Yes. And those are the char- those are the main characters. They are. And then yeah. there's a small but mighty ensemble. Absolutely. A small but very mighty ensemble. Yeah. Okay. So let's go down the list of the main performers. Let's save the sisters for last. Okay. Um... Jeff McCarthy and Hugh Panera was the two love interests. Fine. Fine. I like <laughs> Hugh Panera a little better than Jeff McCarthy. I agree. Yep. I do think Jeff McCarthy's character gets more yeah. meat. 
yep. more gravitas, Absolutely. if you will. Um, I don't like his voice as much, though. It's kind of got I a bit agree. of this boomy thing going on. Yeah. Whereas Hugh Panero's just got a sick voice. That's true. Yeah. It is a great demonstration of Hugh Panero's vocal abilities. I agree. Yeah. But from a character perspective, it just, he doesn't get a lot of time to really flesh it out. I agree. And then what about Norm Lewis? I mean. Kills it. Honestly, right. for me, he can do no wrong. I don't know what it is, but everything I see him in, I'm just more in love with him every day. Everyone, if you don't do anything else from listening to this podcast, go check out this bootleg and listen to Norm Lewis sing The Devil You Know. Yeah. It's unstoppable. It's oh, incredible. And his yeah. act two. And the act two ballad. Oh. Stupid old Henry Krieger, the composer, great composer, keeps on making everyone sing on like ooh vowels. Oh, oh that final note. That final is that note. Oh, you're right. And Absolutely. it's up high too. It's like an It's F, so maybe? high. It is a, a master class in a excellent singer trying desperately to navigate <laughs> an impossible situation where it starts so off true. pinched and he can't do it. Then he opens yeah. it up to vibrato and it sounds great. <sighs> but it's just like, oh, the poor demands, guy. Yeah. The demands of modern musical theater on full display. So what about, oh, um, Ken Jennings. Um... How much did he win on Jeopardy again? <laughs> Quite a bit. He did very well for himself. <laughs> was it Jeopardy or was... Oh, yeah, it yeah, was. it was Jeopardy. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, that Ken Jennings... Actually, I felt that he gestured too much. Yeah. I don't know why sure, sure. Like that would be yeah. in my mind, but I just felt it was a bit... It was so physically involved that I... But now that I'm thinking about it and talking it out, I actually think it was probably a choice. Like, a, oh, he's so desperate for an audience. He's so desperate to ha- to make money that he's just wants these people to come see the sideshow so bad that he like embodies that. I don't know. I didn't love him. I didn't love him either, especially comparing it to the revival. I saw watching numbers from the revival and the um, the boss, the MC for the revival there kind of does a... Um, like Professor Slughorn, but in um, Moulin Rouge there thing. Okay. What's yeah, his yeah, name yeah. now? Like a Jim Broadbent and Moulin Rouge thing there. <laughs> Thank you, producer. <laughs> a Jim Broadbent and Moulin Rouge thing, mm. um, which is very charming. I like yes. it a lot. It really shows up the the grossness of this character yeah. in, a, um, in a more effective way, which is important. Because the smoke and mirrors part the opening, of it. The opening number is the number that really um, highlights the fact that this is taking place at a time when... Um, differently able people were being taken advantage of were being taken advantage of by him so it's really important that this character be a greasy old dude Mm -hmm. as he goes through the opening number called welcome to the free or come look at the freaks right and goes through just slur after slur really being um despicable about all these characters yes you gotta know that he sucks you gotta make it very clear in a show that this guy sucks and i think the revival does that very well yeah i don't think that the opening number in the original does that enough Mm-hmm. From a staging perspective, I was gonna say, or from a, a performance perspective, yeah, a lot yeah. from a staging perspective. Absolutely. It was very bland as yeah. far as setting that up. Yeah, and what about the actual superstars of the show? Because the show is really a feature mm-hmm. for Emily Skinner and Alice Ripley. Oh gosh, it's such a marathon for them. Oh, just looking at Alice. Oh. <laughs> I wish we had a microphone. I wish we had a microphone oh, to share sorry, with Alice, Alice Ripley. You just Too have bad. to sit here while yeah. we talk about you. <laughs> Oh well. To your face. Um, <laughs> I think it's a real marathon for the two of them. Absolutely. I think, again, this was just when we're getting into that territory of that classic Broadway belt. So yep. this is, you know, navigating that mm-hmm. as well. Um, I think they're nice in it. Yeah. I think they were the right choice. I Absolutely. can't imagine anyone else really in those roles. I think they're very good. There is... Unique characterization. They make sure that they're two distinct characters. Yes, that's true. Um, they both sing very well. I think um, Alice Ripley could stand to have a few more notes on uh, Blend. But also... <laughs> but it's her show, Paul. Uh, the impression I get is that Alice Ripley doesn't take notes. <laughs> so it's either that. she doesn't take notes or she takes them and then throws them in the garbage. Well, it's the same as like Next, next to Normal is yes. Alice Ripley's most famous, most famous role. And she's just incredible in it. She really But is. it's just... She's just off the wall. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which works for the show. Exactly. But she's just a, a force of nature and a loose cannon <laughs> is, what stri- is what strikes me. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But overall. I think great. great. I can't find major fault in any performance. Okay. So yeah. on that note. Yeah. Out of 10 playbills, how yeah. many monkeys do you give the performances? Like if I'm averaging eight. Yeah, I would agree with Ken that. Ken Jennings Eight. is down like a six or a five, but Norm Lewis is a 10 plus. I know. So, there you go. <laughs> I know, that's, it all balances out. Yeah. 
we're getting to an interesting point in the podcast mm-hmm. because we have not identified a serious flaw in this show. And for the most part, Ooh. we've been um, very generous. Yeah. This show failed to run 100 performances not just once, but twice. And a lot of the time, the, the flaws we've identified mm-hmm. were fixed with the revival. And the revival didn't did even worse. So I might be able to offer a little bit of um, perspective about why the 97 production didn't work. Terrific. And then I have some thoughts on why Sideshow is untenable on Broadway. <gasps> you go ahead. I'm so excited. Yeah. Well, maybe we should first ask, Paul, do you feel like this needed to be a musical? Yes. I think this is an excellent choice for a musical theater production. Mm -hmm. I think that it gives a lot of opportunity. The music gives a lot of opportunity to explore the inner workings of characters. Mm -hmm. I think they chose a composer who was equipped to tell the story. I think given that it is a story about show business and about vaudeville, that it lends itself very well to music from that perspective. And I think it's a great choice to be a musical. I agree completely. Fantastic. So one of the ways that I think we might be able to identify the flop nature of the original production yeah. comes from a marketing perspective. Oh, cool, yeah. So a friend of mine yep. who knows Hugh Panero, he alluded to her that the, the way that, it, that the marketing team had failed them was that they actually just didn't market the show well at all. Fair enough. Because you can see very clearly that each person involved in the production really took time to um, carefully craft each part of the show itself, Mm -hmm. that when it came time for the producers to do that job, it just Mm -hmm. seemed like they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. Right. And so it was mentioned to me that the cast would have to go to like Times Square and like do little like quick performances Mm -hmm. and tastes of the show to try to drum up support and to get an audience like a friggin fringe show yep like a fringe show to get butts in seats i think that's that makes total sense and i think it's probably especially egregious because you know what else is going on maybe not at this moment but right around this time what the marketing juggernaut that was lion king exactly is starting this year yes and they're just taking over Times Square with this very distinct aesthetic, a mm-hmm. huge marketing campaign with all the um, the yellows and the um, yes. the Sahara aesthetic. Yes. Um, and the Disney machine behind it. Yes, that's and right. And sideshows this weird, quirky story. Not and it's not fun. It's not funny. It's a serious. It's mm-hmm. a tragedy. It's a tragic story. Exactly. And there was also another tragic story playing at that time, which was Ragtime. Absolutely. The original so, Ragtime was up as well. I mean, you have yeah. to pick your shows accordingly. And some people are like, okay, I want to see a happy one. As if Norm <laughs> Lewis was not in the original Ragtime or the original line. I know. That's, that's beyond me. Absolutely. Um, in that New York Post article you sent, yep. I, there was one quote that really jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. And it kind of solidified the the story about this marketing problem yep and it said quote the producers one of whom sold his vacation home to get the production up couldn't accept the fact that audiences weren't responding to their masterpiece end quote (laughs) so i was like like i think that was supposed to be like look how much they cared about this show this guy sold his summer home but i'm like oh, this guy had a summer home to sell. (laughs) That's kind of a... I don't know. I just... I don't know. I just... My heart, I don't feel bad about that. Because you can produce a show and market a show very successfully with not a lot of money. Okay. Mm, I'm saying this under the lens of like current age though. Mm, Mm. Let me think about that. So they tried again in 2014 though. That's right. They They really went went for it. They did a lot of... They fixed a lot of the problems we identified and also the... A critical public identified with the original production. Yep. In a lot of ways, they made it more more respectful to the differently abled artists, mm-hmm. and that up employing more differently abled artists to actually portray the members of the um, of the sideshow. That's right. Um, not entirely. Um, I would love to see a performance of sideshow that actually used 100% differently abled artists. Yes. On a uh, side note, that would be friggin' bomb, mm-hmm. and would be incredible. Yeah. But they made more of a more of an effort than they did originally. Mm-hmm. They changed some lyrics, including and especially the song that the cast of the sideshow sing to Violet and Daisy as they leave. Mm-hmm. In the original production was Say Goodbye to the Freak Show. 
um, changing it to the much more respectful Say Goodbye to the Sideshow. Yes. Uh, which is a great choice. Mm-hmm. A beautiful it, set. A yeah. lot of nice choreography. Mm-hmm. Great costumes. Great costumes. Their wig choice yeah. made a lot of sense. It was almost as if they were paying homage to the real Daisy and Violet in the Absolutely. revival. In a yeah. way that they did not in the original. Mm-hmm. And it does even worse. Two months. So what happened, Paul? Do you know? My theory is that... <laughs> basically, my theory is that Broadway's broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. My... To, to elaborate, to, to not be glib, to actually be um, be sincere here. My theory is that Broadway doesn't have much room for a story like Sideshow mm. that doesn't have a hook. is just a sincere story about what is at this point an obscure piece of history. Right. Without, they never did any kind of stunt casting on it, um, which is one strategy that shows have used in the past to um, achieve that kind of success. That's right. And they never quite seemed to get their hooks into the excitement of the Broadway-consuming population like something like Town does. Right. Is one that jumps to mind that somehow manages to land on its feet. Jervin Hansen is another one without any kind of significant stunt casting mm-hmm. or being a recognizable property. Yeah. I think it's just a sad story and one that the general audience can't really find, um, that a commercial audience doesn't find relatable. Yeah. I think it's a bummer. I think it's a beautiful piece. I think it's a piece that should be more well-known and should receive much more, um, many more productions. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a big significant reason for it not succeeding. I think it's just not the right show for commercial Broadway. What else was on in 2014? There was some big shows on in 2014. This is the, this is the other thing to consider. It really, um, both times it went up against some significant heavy hitters. I think I'm noticing that trend as well. Like some... I mean, the shows we've covered before haven't obviously been as good or structurally sound, but the context of what else is playing really helps me understand. In 2014, it was up against, as far as um, its commercial audiences goes, Mm -hmm. it was up against Aladdin, Beautiful Carol King, and um, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder were all playing against it. Okay. did Gentleman's Guide win that Gentleman's year? Gentleman's Death of the Year, Gentleman's Guide yeah, won. Okay. This isn't the year that they were considered in the Tonys due to when they came out. But right. this is this is what they were playing against yes. as far as Box audiences office. go. Yeah. And as far as counterculture and um, cult fan bases, they were mm-hmm. playing against Neil Patrick Harris's Hedwig. Oh, that's right. Um, that was that year. Okay. Which is um, yeah. an incredible revival, an incredible piece. Yes. And I think a piece that takes a lot of the same audience. It absolutely would. And, yeah. But also with a, with a name. But by all accounts, I can't find a bad review of the 2014 Sideshow either. And it got shut out from the Tonys. Um, it didn't even make it two months. It is, it's a really sad story for such a beautiful musical. Let's talk about the Tony Awards. The Tony Awards that year. Obviously, we already started to get into it. So as far as the Tonys go in 1997... Sideshow was nominated for four Tonys. I believe the most that we've seen so far for any of our shows. Absolutely. And some big Tonys. And some big ones. So we have Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score, and Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, shared by the Magnetic Twins. Which I think is odd, and I don't know that it's happened since. A shared nomination. So some of the other musicals that yeah. were um, nominated that year were Ragtime, Evita, Sound of Music, The Lion King, Cabaret, Scarlet Pimpernel, and 1776. So just a ton of Was that the Alan Cumming music- Cabaret? It was. Fascinating. Alan Cumming and Natasha Richardson. Yeah. I mean. Oh, that's so cool. Yes, which is why we need to talk about Cabaret. Is it possible that Cabaret kind of took some of Sideshow's audience? I definitely could see that yeah yes as far as you're a you're a tourist in new york you don't know much of what's going on mm-hmm. um here's cabaret and here's sideshow on paper they look like pretty much the same thing yes except cabaret had a movie with liza minnelli exactly. and it's got alan coming so you're gonna go see that yeah. instead of weird old sideshow from the guy who wrote dream girls mm-hmm. and alice ripley who at this time isn't even anyone it's really it's it's too bad it's the it's the sign of how even or it's not enough to be a nice show on its own, at yeah. least when you're competing in the commercial marketplace. It's true. And that's so frustrating. It is. Um, I think we've um, we've made our opinion pretty clear. I think so. I think it won't come as any surprise when we go to this next segment, which we have to do contractually, um, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Flop. 
bop or make it stop. Is it a total flop? Is it a surprise bop? Or do we need to make it stop? On the count of three, we're both going to say what we think it is. One, two, three. Total flop. Just kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. It's a total flop. Oh, that could have been so good if you would have just stuck with the structure of my game. That can't be a surprise after we sang the uh, the joys of this show for an hour. It's true. This is an awesome show. Love this show. Everyone, please check out this show and let's start talking about how we can do a version of this show that features a cast full of artists with disabilities. Because that would just be incredible. And it's a show that deserves it. That's worth it. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. I think that's it for us for now. I think we've touched on everything. Absolutely. I I should just quickly mention that it is so helpful if you rate, review, like, subscribe, call, email, text, in DM, slip into our DMs. Absolutely. And carrier pigeon. Please, if you think anyone else um, in your circle would like this show, would enjoy this show. Please let them know yeah. to check us out. We always love to hear from people who are listening. We received a few really excellent reviews on our Apple podcast. Thank you to those who took the time to write those for us. We really appreciate it. And we're Absolutely. so glad you're listening. Including friend of the podcast, my mom. Including <laughs> friend of the podcast, producer Daphne's mom. Yay. Hi, Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> What are we going to talk about next time? Next time, we're going to talk about... Big Big Fish! fish. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us. We're now now Violet and Daisy. Absolutely. I will never leave you. I will never go away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you all so much. This is always a blast. This has been a lot of fun. Can't wait to connect with you all sometime soon. Bye! Hi everyone, this is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for joining us for Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. If you have a show that you'd like us to cover, you can get in touch with us at monkeysandplaybillspod on Instagram or by emailing monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGurse and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Big Fish.